Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a look at France's updated defense strategy and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendet, part of the Crack Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses. Uh, he is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security uh, and is one of the world's leading experts, not just on the Russian military, but their unmanned capabilities and indeed unmanned capabilities worldwide. Uh, Sam, always a pleasure having you on uh, every Monday to talk about uh, a conflict from which uh, there are an enormous number of daily lessons. Thank you. Always great to be back. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show uh, were, uh, was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. Uh, Sam, uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, it uh, was a humiliating defeat for Russia. Uh, Ukraine has reclaimed uh, Kherson after a long uh, campaign. Um, there was much rejoicing by Ukrainians, but also much bitterness over the brutality of Russia's uh, occupation. Uh, Kiev has been under pressure to negotiate a settlement, uh, but there is also a passionate uh, desire by Ukrainians uh, now to reclaim even more of their territory, setting up uh, potentially a fight for uh, Crimea, uh, and other parts of Donbass and Luhansk. Um, and the fight clearly is gonna stretch into the winter uh, unless there is a negotiated settlement that some hope uh, will happen that might not be as forthcoming. Um, walk us through where we are now and what's next. So at this point, as you have indicated, Russian forces have largely withdrawn to another um, bank of the Dnieper River. And Russians are basically portraying this as an organized retreat that was necessary to consolidate the resources. And the new commander, Surovikin, is hailing it as a logistical feat that would enable Russia to continue its operations into the winter. You are also right to indicate that this fighting will actually stretch into the winter. Both sides are preparing for winter combat. They're stockpiling on different types of equipment. Russians are fundraising for thermal um, underwear and uh, warm clothing for their soldiers. Ukrainians are also getting new, um, new winterized uh, clothing and equipment. It is likely that Ukrainians will push uh, Russians further, probably not around Kherson, where Russians have consolidated and have extensive um, military systems in place. They may probe Russian defenses uh, in other areas to try and see if the Russian defense could be stretched out. But at this point, Russians are preparing to dig in. They're preparing for long-term operations that will last several months. And the Ukrainians are looking to build on their momentum and possibly roll Russians in, uh, in other areas, maybe in Zaporozhye or in other regions of Ukraine where Russians have already demonstrated a weakness. Let's uh, shift to uh, the rapid equipping program uh, the Russians uh, are using. Every nation that finds its troops in combat, uh, whether it's the United States or Europe, uh, has uh, programs in place to uh, or creates programs to accelerate 
uh, and uh, weapons fielding, as well as short circuit the conventional acquisition process. Um, I, I'm not necessarily sure it's the best idea uh, for uh, the Russians to be short circuiting their acquisition process, but nonetheless, um, talk to us about some of the capabilities the Russians are looking to accelerate uh, fielding of, and also talk to us about the unique role that Dmitry Rogozin uh, is playing, right? Uh, until this summer, he was the Roscosmos uh, chief, obviously a very important job, uh, threatened Europe and the United States with uh, the International Space Station deorbiting onto American or European uh, territory, uh, almost suggesting it, it's, uh, you know, a several hundred ton weapon, uh, whereas now, and former uh, Russian ambassador to NATO, and is now playing kind of a unique role. Talk to us about his role, but then also talk to us more broadly about the the drive to get capability into Russian soldiers' hands as quickly as possible. That's correct. Rogozin uh, used to be one of the key Russian bureaucrats. Uh, he was heading Roscosmos. His tenure there has a mixed sort of response from the Russian society and community. Uh, some have respected him for uh, trying to manage the sprawling um, bureaucracy. Uh, others uh, actually considering him the butt of jokes for some of his missteps. Um, many people are happy he's no longer at Roscosmos, but his new role is very interesting from the point of view of someone who is trying to reinvent himself. So Rogozin left his corporate uh, C-suite and uh, left his um, three-piece suit basically at home. He's now wearing tactical gear. He's now in Donbass and he's leading a group which he named Tsar's Wolves, Tsarsky Volki, in a, in a throwback to the pre-1917 um, environment where a lot of efforts related to the military were actually basically related to the Tsar. And he's leading this group of volunteers with military experience to connect the warfighters in the Donbass with Russian defense industrial enterprises and military technical solutions that may not have made it to the field yet, and his effort is basically trying to speed up the delivery of much needed material and equipment to the Donbass fighters, specifically to the Donetsk and Lugansk militias. He is concentrating on the development and the procurement and rapid fielding of unmanned aerial vehicles, both for intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance and for combat. And he basically uh, has a new, he has a new call sign, Sarmat, which has taken after a new Russian ballistic nuclear missile so this is someone who is no longer wearing suits, no longer dunking dogs in uh, uh, oxygenated liquid to basically demonstrate a weird science experiment. Yes, this actually happened. Um, now he is wearing camos. He's surrounding himself with veterans and soldiers. He's out there in the field, and he basically considers himself one of the people who can speed up a uh, technical solution for one of the problems that Donbass fighters are experiencing. He is in a similar, uh, I guess, boat right now as Yevgeny Prigozhin, one of, uh, one of people close to Putin, the CEO of Wagner, private military company, because Prigozhin opened up his own research and development center in St. Petersburg to basically fund uh, high-tech startups, to fund and speed up the delivery of IT and technical solutions to the military, and obviously to his own Wagner Private Military Corporation. So I think Rogozin is tapping into the widespread discontent and widespread criticism of how MOD, Russian Ministry of Defense, has handled military procurement and acquisition 
And um, he is basically building on volunteer months long experience in trying to procure civilian commercial technology or some of the military technologies and deliver them to the forces by means other than the official MOD. And, and what are some of the systems that are the highest priorities, right? Because uh, the Russians are looking at everything from uh, sleeping bags and warm weather gear and better boots, right? The very basics that every army should be uh, procuring, right? Where they're going to the population to try to get money right. uh, to buy that or get them to send camping gear uh, right. over there. Uh, and, and then they've also got some much more specific military needs. Talk to us about the range of stuff that they're trying to short circuit and press into the field. Everything from thermal underwear to night vision equipment to thermal sites and to the ever necessary quadcopters. Volunteers are still fundraising for DJI Mavic drones. And Rogozin wants to basically be one of the people who can provide a domestic Russian solution to replace these ubiquitous and widespread Chinese-made drones. He claims that there are Russian defense industrial enterprises that can manufacture these light quadcopters and they can be delivered to the front and rigged basically for ISR and combat missions. There are, in fact, Russian defense industrial enterprises. Indeed, there are many companies which are manufacturing light UAVs for the commercial market. The question is, can all of that actually replace DJI, which is world famous for its simplicity, the ease of use, and the ease of maintenance? Uh, but quadcopters remain at the top of the list as a tactical ISR device. And it's probably going to grow in importance as both sides dig in and basically identifying a threat just a few kilometers away from your position is going to be absolutely paramount and life-saving. Let me ask you uh, one last uh, question, and that's about uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, uh, regime and how stable it is. Um, The criticism of Putin is rising um, just about everywhere. Uh, I'm not one of these people who believes that, okay, he's on his way out just because people are complaining. Um, What's sort of the sense that you're picking up from uh, Russian social media about Putin's and what it tells us about what Putin's position now uh, is uh, relative to a whole bunch of senior leaders who don't want to be blamed for something which, right, everybody is complicit because they've all been stealing their bought bad tires, right? I mean, so it's a whole rotten system. But even in that rotten system, there are people who don't want to necessarily be blamed or held as a scapegoat by Putin when, right, that big meeting suggested not all of them were as gung-ho about this operation as uh, he wanted them to be. Well, we have to basically view this public criticism with a significant sort of grain of salt because we have to ask whether this is actual criticism that's rising against the head of state or it's the ability to siphon off some of the frustration on the air and deflect attention away from Putin and towards the bad boyars who are stealing. This is the old Russian expression. The goods are the bad boyars, the bad nobles. So is this all about sort of the bad nobles misallocating, quote unquote, the resources? And uh, is it about the bad ministry of defense that has mismanaged the war? Or is it about actual Putin himself? So um, we also have to recognize that there's a very significant part uh, of the Russian population, a very significant percentage that basically are loyal to the government. And as many pundits are saying, both inside and outside of Russia, these people are basically loyal to the government, no matter what the government says. If the government says the war in Ukraine is necessary, 
this very large percentage of the population will support it. And if the government is saying that the war is bad and has to change, then they will support that decision as well. And so what happens at the elite level isn't necessarily reflective of what is happening across the society. Yes, there's a lot of frustration with mobilization. Yes, plenty of people are angry. Yes, there's lots of social media videos. Um, but overall, this isn't necessarily going to stop the conduct and the prosecution of war by the Russian military, especially as Russia seeks to uh, basically dig in for the winter, reorganize by itself some time to train and retrain and re-equip these newly mobilized forces. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us and look forward to having you back again soon. Thank you. Thanks so much, Vago. Last week, French President Emmanuel Macron rolled out France's new defense strategy for a dangerous world with 10 priorities, placing NATO at the center of French security, uh, as well as improving capabilities through better European industrial cooperation that will shape investment uh, of the upcoming military program law between 2024 and 2030. Joining us to discuss is Dr. Michael Shurkin, one of America's leading experts on French national security, a veteran of the CIA and the RAND think tank, who now lectures at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, uh, who is also an Atlantic, a senior Atlantic Council fellow and the founder and president of the Shurbros Global Strategies Consultancy. Michael, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. The pleasure is mine. Um, so first, uh, talk to us about what uh, Macron announced uh, and why it's so important and what the key takeaways are. He's building on what uh, the uh, France's chief of De uh, defense, General Terry Burkhardt, uh, put out uh, earlier this year, which was a strategy to win without fighting. Uh, certainly a, a, a very important uh, document when it came out that got a lot of interest in Washington. What do folks need to take away from uh, President Macron's uh, new strategy? So President Macron's new strategy is really a continuation of a strategic shift that's been going on for a while, certainly at least since 2014, wherein the French have been sizing up, uh, frankly, the Russians, and sizing up the possibility that they might once again find themselves in a state-on-state -state conflict, which requires uh, a completely different set of capabilities uh, and capacity than the kinds of wars that they've been getting into, sort of most famously things like their, their intervention in Mali in 2013, and, and he also mentioned that, the fact that that intervention, which morphed into something called Barkhan, Operation Barkhan, he also officially announced the end of Barkhan. And that, that's sort of part of the same note, the idea being that our focus is no longer going to be on these small wars. The focus is going to be on, on back to fighting wars in Europe, thinking about balance of power and thinking about the deterrence once again, which includes both nuclear deterrence and conventional deterrence. Uh, I think most people would, argue, would, would agree with me that there's not that much new in what Macron said. Rather, it's sort of like the next incremental step uh, further down this path of preparing for thinking about uh, European war. Uh, thus, it it's completely follows up on what General Burkhardt did. Uh, came out with last year, but this has also been consistent with what the French have been writing and publishing ever, at least since 
as far back as 20, 2014. Thanks for correcting me. My apologies. You know, in this COVID era, everything blurs together. And yes, uh, uh, the unveiling was uh, last year. So I apologize for that error. Um, what are right? The cornerstone remains uh, France's national, uh, uh, France's nuclear deterrent. But what are some of the other capabilities the French are interested in building up, not just from a national perspective, uh, but also uh, working with the United States as well as its European allies and partners? Because when you talk to uh, both active as well as retired French officers and leaders, they talk to you about the magnitude of the job of, for example, rebuilding weapons stocks, right? I mean, a hot topic mm -hmm. uh, now. What are some of the investments that France wants to make? Because when France gets serious, actually all of Europe gets serious. Right. So it, it is about, on, on one hand, the very serious about maintaining the nuclear deterrence. And, and I think also the Ukraine crisis has, has uh, validated the French view on this as well as the British view on this, that they really need this stuff. But then secondly, this also means that they have to develop the capabilities that they see now as being relevant. And what the for the relevant for the kind of war that, that it looks like now we would fight. So if you look at the new uh, this new strategic document, you'll see that there's a lot of emphasis on all of government approaches. Uh, and that's because there's this notion that there is still a hybrid fight going on, which means you have to use all the instruments of, of national power. You have to be able to do influence operations. You have to have cyber. You have to be able to, to defend and, and have freedom of action in all of the, the domains, to use the American word. But at the same time, it comes down to having conventional deterrence, which means once again, as we see in Ukraine, you need long range fires, you need precision fires, you need tanks, you need armor, uh, you need artillery, uh, you need to be able to orchestrate all of these. You have to have the right kind of command and control capabilities. You have to have the right doctrine. You have to have the, the skills to, to maintain a large fight, right, to, to, to orchestrate numerous actors uh, in, a, in a combined and joint uh, setting. And none of this is, is stuff that um, can be taken for granted. And I don't want to say that this is stuff that the French don't have. They do have all of these things. But what the, the French are seeing is the evidence of the need to step it up to step all of these things up, to have more of everything, to be more capable of everything, and to also strengthen their relations with their chief allies to be able to make sure that they could do this together with their allies, because they do assume that if they were to get into any large fight, they would be doing it alongside, at the very least, the United States and probably other Europeans as well. So this means that all those things that they've said that they needed that they and they do to some extent have they just need to really dial it up more right. in order to have the as they say they need to have, to have a, a, a the conventional deterrence as well as anything else i i would want to pull your listeners attention though to what i think is the most interesting part of the the new document and the thing that stands out compared to what uh, general burkhardt burkhardt published which is this new emphasis on the defense industrial base that the, um, what Ukraine has underscored for the French, as well as everybody else, it's not just the French that receive this, but has underscored is the fact that in order to sustain a fight like what we're seeing in Ukraine, what one needs is a completely different defense industrial base. That defense industrial base has to be, first of all, autonomous, Right, meaning that they can't be dependent on other people or on the whims of international supply chains. 
So to the extent that that's possible, they need to have that those supply chains be French or at least European. And then secondly, they need that defense industrial capability or capacity to be much greater than is currently uh, the case. And this is a real problem because really the, the, the Europe's defense industrial base, and I think America's defense industrial base as well, has been geared towards being frankly unproductive. The idea being that you gear your factory to be able to produce as little as possible, but to stay as open, to stay open while producing very little. Right. Which right. is the opposite of, let's say, the way a car factory works, where it's all about maximizing productivity. You don't maximize your tank production line because you're only going to get orders for one or two tanks per year, which means you need to slow everything down. And that's what they have. It's almost like a luxury good. Right. right. Uh, or right. So it's a, it's a bit of a boutique uh, industry. It's a boutique, right. It, right. Exactly. So so. French Caesar howitzers, which are magnificent, but they're, it's a boutique. It's a practically artisanal the way it's made. And this is true for everything. I mean, it's not just the French. It's true for, the, for all the, the, the major arms manufacturers. So, But the question is, how do you size that up? How do you scale it up? And it's not even just scaling it up. You can't just sort of change the gears on the, the Caesar production line. You, you have to expand the Caesar production line in all sorts of ways. How do you do that? Well, it means that you have to spend a lot of money you have to be willing to spend a lot of money and you have to rethink the defense industrial base in a very different way. And I think that's the most important part of the strategic document. Now, the, the bad news is that I think the strategic document is short on, on suggestions for how do you actually do this. And also the fact that you have this planning document doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do it. Right. Is the French government going to be willing to write the checks required in order to expand the howitzer production, for example? And, and again, this is true for the British, this is true for the Germans. Uh, are they really going to do it? And, and can they justify this? And how do they, um, how do they go about it? But, but the point being is that I think the most, that's the most interesting part of Macron's uh, strategy document. And Macron has been talking about having to have a war economy. We need to go on a war footing, which obviously doesn't mean a full-blown nationalization or a full-blown um, uh, mobilization of industry, which was the case back in 1914 or 1939, 1940. Right. Obviously, that's not in the works. That's not an option. But it's got to be something in that direction. Right. Now, again, the, the, the really hard part's going to be in terms of defining where that is and how do you make that work. And then this gets into this other question about the, the tension between uh, like French production versus European and wanting to cultivate European industry. And then this speaks to the whole question of sort of the French quest for autonomy, right. uh, uh, which I suspect is your next question. That is exactly my next question. We want to get your uh, sense. Uh, because there's a lot of neuralgia between the American and the French uh, relationship. And so every time your uh, France uh, or Macron uh, talks about sovereignty, there are those in the or the importance of the uh, EU or maintaining national capabilities. It's taken as an anti-American uh, uh, message. Uh, right. And I and I think actually the joint message that uh, Terry Burkhardt was developing was win uh, before fighting. Right. Set the conditions, you know, as you said, from all arms of government. What is it Americans have to take away or maybe French have to change their messaging so that the two sides actually don't misunderstand one another? Because actually they're, they're, they're matching and mirroring messages, not opposing messages. Right. Um, I, I, 
it's not clear to me how the French would change the message. I think it's more the Americans need to just look at it and, and listen to the French message more that uh, sovereignty just means being their own people and being able to uh, act independently. In other words, they don't have to wait for or depend on the U.S. to defend Ukraine if they chose to defend Ukraine, or they don't have to rely on European American nuclear weapons in order to provide any kind of nuclear deterrence. Uh, it, it, it's about autonomy, but ultimately this is something that I really believe Americans need to view as, as uh, to our benefit, that we benefit from having a, a strong ally that can do things on its own. We benefit from having also even having an ally that's got a strong defense industry uh, because at the end of the day, we can't necessarily supply them. Our own industry is also limited. Our defense industrial base, while larger than France's, is still not large enough to meet our needs uh, or get to the levels of, for instance, supplying the munitions that we need, even just to provide the Ukrainians with, with what they need or to provide our own military with what we now understand to be necessary if we were to get into a conflict of our own with with God forbid China, having a team player that's very strong, that has the autonomy that it wants and feels that it needs, this is not something that I think uh, is to our detriment. And I think that the American, as you put it, this neuralgic reaction that we have uh, to, to French rhetoric of strategic autonomy, I think is really misplaced. It's also a question of whether or not the French act as sort of political spoilers the way I think de Gaulle did in some frankly, petty ways with what they do now. Um, you know, some would say that they still do this, but I think on balance, when push comes to shove with the really important things, they, the, the French are on, on side. And thus having a strong person on side rather than sort of a weak person, uh, I, I think is, is a real advantage for us. This is in our strategic interest. Uh, I, would, I would agree. And uh, having uh, uh, sort of uh, a French um, a strategic mindset alongside ours, uh, I think, ultimately makes both sides uh, stronger. Uh, Michael, absolute pleasure, ha absolute pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much and look forward to calling on you uh, more often uh, as we go through this process, because, again, uh, we're going to have to see what the budget holds. Uh, and, and ultimately, um, everybody wants to spend more money on defense uh, than uh, they can. So certainly the debate is going to be an interesting one to watch, especially since France has taken on so much debt. Thanks so much yes. again. As it's Monday, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Uh, Byron, welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Uh, indeed, and I hope you guys had a good uh, Veterans Day uh, holiday. Um, great notes as always. Uh, you noted the outcome of the mid. Uh, uh, you noted that the outcome of the midterm election uh, would be positive for defense. I want to get to that in a minute. But one of your other notes was that Asia has been on a slow simmer uh, as Washington has focused on uh, Ukraine's uh, on, on Russia's war on on Ukraine. Um, President Biden uh, and China's Xi Jinping met today for three hours uh, on the sidelines of the G20 conference in Bali. Um, they said that they wanted to avoid another Cold War, would seek cooperation where possible, like on climate, uh, but continue to disagree. Um, certainly the U.S. side that, uh, said uh, would disagree with Beijing on its territorial uh, claims, uh, Taiwan and other issues. First, talk to us about the slow simmer Right. And whether this meeting changes any vectors as far as uh, you're concerned, especially since we had a bit of a sell off last week uh, in the defense names. Yeah, Vago, I, I think that's really what I was responding to is more the sell off on Friday. You saw a number of these stocks in Europe, and the United States down, you know, five to eight percent, which which is a little unusual. Um, 
it was attributed to rotation, uh, you know, with a slightly better CPI number in the United States that convinced people that, okay, maybe, maybe rates are going to start to fall and you'll get a better outlook for non-defense industrials. I mean, I'm not going to make those kind of calls. We're not an investment house at Capital Alpha Partners, but I, I just think the fundamental backdrop had really not changed for defense. And, you know, the first thing was the midterm elections in the United States. <clears throat> I continue to believe that that kind of de-risked the outlook for the FY23 budget, you know, we'll cross 24 and 25 when we see the administration's proposal and, and what actually transpires. But I think these very slim margins of control that the Democrats and the GOP have, you know, it, it potentially avoids a gridlock scenario, which might have happened had you had a stronger GOP uh, showing in, in the midterm results. Um, and just on, on Asia in general, look, I, I don't think anybody could have expected the meeting today to resolve all the outstanding issues between China and the United States. Yeah, it's, it's good. We're going to be talking again about climate. But, you know, <clears throat> China reiterated its view on Taiwan and the United States reiterated its view on Taiwan. So what's the big surprise? What I was really keying off of was just kind of updating some of the data. I know you guys talked about the Zhuhai Air Show, but I think you know there are some important uh, points that come out of that as well. So, and you know, um, uh, we did talk about Zhuhai. Obviously, we talked about the nine one nine global supply chains. Uh, you know, whether the orders were actually there uh, and how much of them are new or not, as well as sort of the broader decoupling. From your standpoint, what's what jumped out at you about uh, Zhuhai? Well, I think some of the uh, you know the the detective work that was done on the number of, of J-20s that China may have in its inventory, um, the, the number of unmanned combat air vehicles and drones that were shown. Uh, there were some pretty impressive uh, demonstrations of, of kind of AI-linked sensors uh, that were demonstrated at the show. So, you know, the point is, look, China's not standing still. They're, they're going to continue to modernize their military. Um, I uh, you know, the other thing that I updated was the incursions that Taiwan reports by in by China into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Right. And they've been pretty steady. What's what was a little different to me was the number of Sukhoi 30s that have been used in in these operations. And then I don't know if this is something that is a real change in the way Taiwan is is postured in that area, or that it's just Taiwan started to report these, but the data that, that the Ministry of National Defense reports started to show unmanned uh, combat air vehicles and reconnaissance vehicles. And that's kind of new and I think shows, you know, China is demonstrating a capacity that um, at least in the, in the Ministry of National Defense data had not been shown uh, earlier this year and certainly back in the 2021. Um, and uh, what was the J-20 figure uh, that you spotted? Because I think that's an interesting question, right? We have um, 189 F-22s, 187 or whatever the number is, far fewer than that are primary available aircraft. But what, what was the J-20 number that you saw that you thought was interesting? 200. Interesting. So it kind of matches the F-22 fleet, even though it's a different airplane. Absolutely. You know, and, and, it, and they were also, I think the other thing, China did display a Kind of a loyal wingman concept um, that's equivalent to the Boeing MQ-28. Uh, you know that that I think there's speculation that will be used with the J-20. Um, so it's just 
you know, you know, as much as people focus on the midterms and what's going on in, in the Russia-Ukraine war, you know, I don't think people who pay attention to the sector closely uh, have forgotten about Asia and China. But, you know, it's still there. It's still going to be, you know, the pacing threat as leadership in the Department of Defense continues to talk about it. And I think it's going to be, you know, remaining a, a critical factor driving uh, the U.S., Asian and European defense sectors going forward. The president said we didn't sing Kumbaya, uh, right? I mean, it was a three-hour uh, meeting, uh, and the readouts were that it was it was pretty direct and candid, right? A frank exchange, as diplomats would say. Uh, from your standpoint, does it change the spending vector? Because if you look at um, depleted inventories, right? This is now, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot since the beginning of this conflict, and in fact, before, uh, that munitions are a challenge. You know, we tend to focus, you know, the United States does much better at it than our allies and partners. Do you get a sense that there's going to be a big enough slug of new money that helps us very rapidly refill these inventories? Um, or, or does this meeting sort of, you know, people towel off their brow and go, hey, we've got a little bit more time, which is exactly what she may be counting on? Um, no, I mean, I think I think one of the one of the interesting issues to watch in the um, as the NDAA comes together is whether or not this Taiwan Policy Act that had been passed by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee back in July on a bipartisan basis, if that's actually appended to the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, I, I think that's going to be something to watch uh, over the balance of this year. And, you know, the other the other little marker that I think was interesting, there was a deal today that was announced by Rheinmetall where they purchased a, um, a Spanish ammunition company um, for over a billion dollars. Uh, uh, euros that that was kind of intriguing and i think their commentary suggested that while that business had around 400 million in uh, 400 million euros in sales it had the capacity to scale up to double that amount so i, I just think you know there's more news that came out on the german defense budget i think they're up uh, you know a little bit more with their special fund but i think they're up 17% so Again, I think the backdrop remains positive uh, for defense. And uh, give us a quick tour uh, of the week ahead. And what are the key things the audience ought to be paying attention to? Uh, Brookings is holding an event today on kind of innovation and great power competition. Uh, that that ought to be interesting. Um, there, there are a couple of, you know, both the House and Senator back in, in session. There's a House Homeland Security hearing on worldwide threats. That's more about terrorism, but there are some security implications for that. And then Politico is doing an event on Wednesday where uh, the, the chairman CEO of Lockheed Martin is going to be speaking, as well as Adam Smith, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. So that'll be kind of an interesting update on, um, on the state of play, particularly with the National Defense Authorization Act. Oh, and on uh, Thursday, Vago, last thought, RUSI, uh, Royal United Services Institute, is going to be releasing a paper on the Tempest program, which I think they usually do great work. I, I'm looking forward to reading that as well. Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much. I look forward to it every week, Vago. Thank you.